You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. You know, isn't it amazing to think that for the last uh, couple of thousand years, Christians have gathered on Easter Sunday to celebrate not just the perfect life of Jesus, not just the, the sacrificial death of Jesus, but also the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And it is such a joy and a privilege to think about these things with you this morning, to celebrate these things with you. So we're just praying that the Lord would interact with your soul this morning in ways that would be so refreshing and so helpful for you. So go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 15. It would be helpful to have that out and open on your lap. And, uh, and while you're doing there, let me just kind of preface by, uh, by but it's probably 10 or 15 years ago now, I, I heard a, a guy preach on Easter and the pastor applied the resurrection to a topic that, honestly, we don't really like to, to think about. We, we definitely don't like to talk about it. Um, he applied it to, a, to an issue and to a topic that, um, in a lot of ways, is uncomfortable. It's a harsh reality, yet an unavoidable reality all at the same time. He applied the resurrection to the topic of death, to the topic of death. And, you know, it was interesting what happened to me in that moment um, of him doing that. I think in a lot of ways that the resurrection took on new beauty for me in that moment. It was almost as if new rays broke out of the tomb, filling me with new wonder and new awe at the resurrection. And so this is what I would like to do for you this morning. I'd like to revisit um, where a guy took me years ago. I'd like to take you along that same journey, that same path, praying that as we pause over the ugliness of death on Easter Sunday... It might, it might help that the resurrection of Jesus, the empty tomb of Jesus, seem more awe-inspiring and beautiful than it ever has. That, that, that's my hope for you today. Uh, a few years ago, a guy in Christianity Today, a magazine, uh, wrote this about Easter. He said, people flood churches on Easter because they know they are going to hear good news. But Easter is also terrifying news. They think they're going to come and hear good news, and that's true, but Easter is also terrifying news. According to Mark's gospel, early on a Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salam made their way to a tomb to anoint the dead body of Jesus. Mark also tells us that these women had earlier watched the crucifixion of Jesus from a distance. When it was all over, they saw Joseph pull the dead body off the cross, wrap it in linen cloth, lay it in a tomb, and then roll the stone over the door of the tomb. They watched it all from a distance. That is our favorite perspective on death. We do all we can to keep our distance from it. We try to stay healthy, we work out, we watch what we eat, and we're so, so careful. It's all a way of keeping death at bay. But occasionally, death catches up to someone you love, and then you know, like these women, that you have to go and see death up close. But before we can celebrate the wonderful news of Easter, we have to deal with the terrifying news of Easter. But part of what Easter does to us is it doesn't allow us to keep death at a distance Easter forces us to grab death, to pull it up close, and to look at it carefully, to pull it painfully close. And this is really what I want to do over the next few minutes with you, is to pull death up close where it becomes unavoidable for just a few minutes of our life. 
You know, it's interesting to think that from our first breath all the way to our final breath, we all live under the shadow of death, don't we? It's over your life, it's over my life. But if you're like me, uh, you probably try to do everything you can to avoid it. You probably try to do everything you can to keep it at a distance, to avoid making eye contact with it. Have you ever been in a, in a place where uh, you look out of the corner of your eye and you see that person? And when you see that person, the first thought that you think is, there is nobody on the planet I'd rather see less than that person. You ever had that moment? <laughs> I mean, isn't it amazing how adults are really grown up kids? So if you ever had that moment where you're like, I see the person I really don't wanna see, and in that moment you act as if you don't see them and you just turn and walk the other direction, I think that's an apt metaphor for how many of us approach death. We, we kind of relegate it to a back room over there. We, we kind of know it's over there, but we're kind of living with the assumption that if we, if, we'll, if we could just kind of ignore it and keep it over there, surely it will ignore us too. This is the way we approach it. This is the way we, we think about death. And, you know, when you think about conversation, death just really doesn't fit easily into them. It's not the topic of conversation that just brings a sort of gaiety in life that other things do. I, I remember I used to have a friend that um, he worked in a funeral home. And one day I made the, the grave mistake of asking him, how'd your day go? He responded, well, I embalmed some bodies. I dressed them up, put some makeup. I'm like, stop right there. We're done. Note to self, never ask that guy that question again, right? It just doesn't fit real nicely into conversation because death is uncomfortable. It's sobering. It's not easy to talk about, much less even think about. Listen to Charles Spurgeon comment on this. He said, we admit that we shall all die. I think most of us have a, a working awareness that that's coming for us at, at some point in our life. But at the same time, he says this, we admit that we shall all die, but not so soon as to make it a pressing matter. If we can just ignore death, surely it'll ignore us. It, it, we know it's there, but, but surely it's just going to stay way out there. We admit that we shall die, but not so soon as to make it a pressing matter. We imagine that we are not within measurable distance of the tomb. Even the oldest man gives himself a little longer lease. We live thinking if, if death can be ignored, it will ignore us. But there's just moments in our life where death invades and we realize it won't ignore us forever. It won't ignore us forever. You know, and it's interesting to think about our culture. We're all influenced by our culture and, and we have cultural irony when it comes to death. On one side, we live in a culture of death Think assisted suicide, think abortion. We could just go on down the list of how we live in a culture of death. So on one side, we live in a culture of death, but we also live within a culture that's in denial of death. That's the irony of our culture. It's a culture of death that's in denial of death. Listen to D.A. Carson, a New Testament scholar, describe this. He says, but there, uh, but there is a cultural factor at work in the Western world that must be squarely faced. Death has become the last taboo. I can write about sex, discuss homosexuality in public, and debate the ethics of abortion, but I must not mention death in civilized company. The modern mood is living a life as if death is not waiting for us at the end. Isn't that so true? 
That in, in so many ways, if you, if you rewound the clock 100 years, it would be totally normal to talk about death and totally taboo to talk about sex. And now you get into our modern culture and the exact opposite is true. It's totally normal to talk about sex and taboo to talk about death. Now, why is that? I think there's a lot of things you could point to, but it's interesting to think about the difference in our life and how we deal with death now as opposed to 200 years ago. You, you know where death happened 200 years ago? In the back bedroom of your house, that's where it happened. Chances are your, your husband or wife was your doctor. Your kids were your nurses. There was no hospital. There was no funeral home. Your family watched your last breath. They cared for your body. They dug your grave. They probably laid you in it personally. That, that was death 200 years ago. It was impossible to keep death at arm's length 200 years ago. But what was impossible then is definitely possible now. Right? We, we have a professionalized way of dealing with death. And I'm not even saying that's bad. I'm just saying it, it is our culture. We have a professionalized way at, 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 with, at dealing with death. We, we have nurses and we have doctors and we have hospitals and we have funeral homes that will all do the up close and personal work with death. All the while keeping our arms, you know, death at kind of arm's length. In so many ways, we have ordered our life to do that, to, to keep death out there, not, not up here. But one of the things I appreciate most about the Bible is it doesn't ignore death. It deals with death. It talks about death. The Bible has a way of bringing us up close and personal to death. You can just guarantee yourself this. If you just open up your Bible to any page, the wind blows it to wherever place it blows it in the Bible, and you start reading on that page, you can guarantee yourself that you are not far from the smell of death to a reference of death, to a reminder of death, you're not far from that. Death pervades the Bible. It's all throughout the Bible. And I appreciate that about the Bible because it deals with death on one hand. It doesn't avoid it. It doesn't, it doesn't refuse to make eye contact with death. It, it deals with death. And even more importantly, it informs us about death. It has something to say about death, the origins of death, the, the reasons for death, the why of death. So, so why in the Bible is there death? How, how does the Bible answer that question? Why is there such a thing as death? Here's the Bible's answer. Death is God's just judgment of sin. This is the reason that there is death. Death is God's just judgment of sin. Death is no accident in the scriptures. According to the scriptures, death is God's just punishment, his penalty for sin. In that way, death is ordained by God to deal with sin. This is the origins of death, the why of death, the reasons of death. Now, when we're talking about sin, we shouldn't assume that we have a robust biblical understanding of, of sin. We should test it. We should make sure it's squaring with the Bible. So what is sin? Uh, most people rightly see sin as it's a breaking of God's law. Now, that, that's a right thing. 1 John 3, 4 tells us that sin is lawlessness. Sin is, sin is when, when God says, don't do it, and we do it. Or God says, do it, and we don't do it. That's breaking God's law, and that's sin in the scriptures. And, you know, if you just need help seeing how prevalent sin is in other people's lives and in your life, just read the Ten Commandments. In part, the Ten Commandments were given to us as a gift from God to help us see what's inside of us, to see how pervasive sin is in the world and in our own hearts. Okay, so, so sin is, in one sense, breaking of God's law. But at the same time, sin is much bigger and broader than a breaking of God's law. When you get sin down to its roots, 
Now, we, we want to see things down there, and the Bible helps us do that. When, when we see down there, under the surface, d- down below the breaking of God's law, what we find is at its root, sin is trying to substitute ourselves for God. At its essence, d- d- deep down, sin is an act of treason. It, it's an act of, of us looking up at our creator and saying, we don't want you on that throne, we want to be on that throne. That that is the essence and the heart and the root of sin. This is why John Stott says this about sin. He says, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. That's at the root level what sin is. J.I. Packer, he says it this way. Sin is a spirit of fighting God in order to play God. Fighting God in order to play God. Sin Sin is much bigger than what any of us are doing. It's what we're desiring. And what sin desires is is to dethrone God, to to rip God off of his throne and for us to sit on that throne. Sin is a ruthless reaching for the rule of God in our life. And this is in your heart, it's in my heart, it's in all of our heart. Contrary to how many people think about sin, sin isn't the result of acting, a person acting as if there is no God. Rather, sin is the result of, of acting like we are God. But we're going to be the ones in charge of this thing. I'm going to be the one that calls the shots, that makes the rules. That that is the heart of sin. Now, if you want a portrait of that, all you need to do is turn to Genesis chapter 3. It is our portrait of sin. If you know the story, God in, in Genesis 1 and 2 creates a world, puts our first parents in it, and then he gives them a clear command. He says, you can have everything in the garden. It's all yours to enjoy. I've given you everything you need for life and happiness and enjoyment. I've given you everything. Just don't eat of that tree right there. Everything else is yours, just not that tree. And if you know the story, they obeyed that that command for all of about 14 verses. I mean, they did really wonderful, right? 14 verses in, we find them eating the forbidden fruit, but their sin was much bigger than a bite of fruit. It was much bigger than that. In that moment of biting that fruit, they were fighting God in order to play God. They were reaching for the rule of God. In that moment, they're looking at God and saying, God, I don't care what you've commanded. You need to start caring what I've commanded. And I've said I can eat whatever I want. So God, here's the way the relationship works now. I don't bow to you and submit to you. You're going to be the one bowing to me, God. That's what's happening in the moment of Genesis chapter 3. That's the essence of sin. This is at the root of sin. That's what's happening in our souls. And for that sin, God pronounces judgment. And here's the judgment that God pronounces over people who are fighting him in order to play him. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Galatians, or Genesis chapter two, verse 17. This is him in the garden. Here's your one command. You can have everything, but just don't eat of this. For in the day that you eat of it, of this, of this one tree that I commanded you not to eat of, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely what? You shall surely die. Do you remember uh, the part of, of Adam's curse in Genesis 3.19? God looks at him and says, Adam, for, for you are of dust, and to dust you will return. That is God introducing the judgment of death into this world. In Genesis 3, sin is introduced, And tethered to that sin is that uncomfortable, harsh, unavoidable judgment from God called death. And if you read forward from Genesis chapter 3, what you find is the shadow of death 
pervades everything in every moment of life from that point forward. So in Genesis chapter four, Cain kills his brother Abel. In Genesis chapter five, you have the generations listed after Adam. And there's this rhythm to those generations. And here's, here's the basic rhythm that you find in Genesis chapter five. A man is introduced. We learn the length of his years. We learn his descendants, who his sons were. And then eight times in chapter five, you find this as the last piece of that four-part rhythm. And he died. And he died. And he died eight times. So here's what the Bible is telling us. You can eat all the broccoli you want. Hit the gym, pound your vitamins, sniff all the essential oils you want to sniff. (laughs) But at the end of the day, there will be a moment written at the end of your life that says, and he died. And she died. Paul is giving it to us in just the unadulterated form in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, when he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, through Adam, and death through sin... Death was tethered to that first sin. He goes on, and so death spread to all men, to every human being, because all have sinned. Death is now the unavoidable, harsh reality awaiting us all. Now, here's where the hole gets deeper. Death is God's just judgment of sin, but physical death is not the only or ultimate judgment for sin. Physical death is not the only or ultimate judgment for sin. God's judgment is not just confined to to physical death. For those who die apart from Jesus, physical death is not the last enemy. For, For those who die apart from Jesus, physical death is not that last enemy. The Bible makes this so clear that in the end, God is the last enemy. That in the end, God's wrath is the last enemy. For for those who die apart from Jesus, death is like that dark door that ushers us directly into the wrath of God. Now, I know that does not settle well on modern ears. Uh, R.C. Sproul, he, he used to say that the great myth of the 20th century is that there is no wrath in God. But maybe God has you here to consider the scriptures. Maybe God has you here to to think about that, to to make sure that that your view of God actually squares with how the Bible talks about him. For for you to hear Hebrews 9, 27, when, when the writer of Hebrews tells us, and just as it is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. That's what's awaiting us on the other side of death. And on that day of judgment, if you're banking on anything other than Jesus, anything other than Jesus, then rather than hearing the sweet, satisfying music of the grace of God, we will be ushered directly into the terrifying wrath of God. That is the sobering news of Easter. That is the terrifying news of Easter. Yes, death is God's just judgment of sin, but it's not the only judgment. Physical death is not the only or ultimate judgment of sin. That there is also a spiritual judgment, a spiritual death awaiting every person outside of Jesus. Now, here's the turn. Here's where I want to take a, a left turn and, and move us into 1 Corinthians 15. Because some of you are like, man, did this guy wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Does he know it's Easter? Why would we spend that much time talking about death and what the Bible says about death? Here's the reason. Because Easter is impossible to appreciate until we've contemplated the reason and the results of the resurrection. 
See, like, there's no way Easter is going to make our heart glad, make it sing and dance and leap for joy until we know what problem the resurrection is actually solving for us. Like, what it's actually accomplishing, what it's doing for us. Just like the death of Jesus and just like death in the Bible has these huge ramifications, this huge biblical significance, so does the resurrection of Jesus have this massively huge biblical significance. Now, how would we summarize the biblical significance of the resurrection? Here's, here it is in a single statement. The resurrection is God's gracious solution to death, to sin and judgment. See, when we come to the resurrection, if we want to have eyes that can, that can see it and a heart that can really feel deep down the beauty and the awe of the resurrection, we've got to know that it is God's gracious solution to some of our biggest problems, namely death, sin, and judgment. Easter is God's announcement to the world that sin, death, and judgment do not have the last word, but God does. It is announcing that to the world. That's what Easter is, is solving for us. Now, let me just draw out two implications of, of Easter, of the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. Two implications or just applications of, of what Paul says Easter accomplishes, what, what it does for us. 1 Corinthians 15 is the richest chapter in the Bible on the resurrection. We could spend a set of sermons in this chapter. Let me just draw out two implications. Number one, Easter assures us of the forgiveness of sin. Easter assures us of the forgiveness of sin. Think about in your life what you need more than anything else. What you need more than anything else. The Bible's answer to that question of what we need most in life is not a bigger house, a better car, a better job, a job, that's not the Bible's answer to that question. The, the Bible's answer to that question is what we need more than anything else is the forgiveness of sin. We have no greater need. You have no greater need in your life than to be forgiven of your sin, of, of you breaking God's law, of you fighting with God in order to play God. You have no greater need than that. Listen to how John Piper describes this. He says it this way. I put this as the, as the basic need and longing of our heart. Because if God holds our sins against us, then there is no hope of anything else from God. The foundation of every other blessing from God is that God won't hold our sins against us. Everything hangs on forgiveness. So, I mean, think about your own life. If all have sinned, if all are guilty before God, if all have fought with God in order to be God, if all have, have reached in just a ruthless way for, for God's rule in our life, if, if that's true for us, then what that means is left to ourselves, then we're going to be left in death and condemnation. That's what it means. Left to ourselves, sin will undo us. It will cost us both our physical life and our spiritual life. There's not a human being on this planet who does not need forgiveness more than anything else who is not in a desperate need of forgiveness. If God, if God holds our sins against us, there is no hope for any of us. But in the resurrection, God announces his grace, gracious provision for our great need. In the resurrection, God is announcing 
the, the pathway toward, the means of the forgiveness of sin. This is what he's doing in the resurrection. So look at 1 Corinthians 15. In this chapter, Paul is talking to people who are having a hard time stretching their brain wide enough to take in the fact that Jesus actually came back to life. That they're having a hard time believing that, seeing that. They're just having a hard time with that reality. So, so Paul goes on and he says, okay, so let's just play that out then. Let's just, let's just say for a moment that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. What would that mean for us? He goes on. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, verse 14, our preaching is in vain. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, verse 14, your faith is in vain. If Christ wasn't raised from the dead, verse 15, we have misrepresented God. Verse 18, if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, the dead have perished. They just are buried in the ground somewhere. Right? Verse 19, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then Christians of all people on the planet are to be most pitied. But then look at verse 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Now there could be no, no worse news for a human being to hear than God say, you are still in your sin. There could be no worse news. And Paul is saying, if, if the, the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, that's where we're left. If the resurrection of Jesus isn't true, then that's where we are. We are still in our sin. But then look at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who's fallen asleep. Paul's saying the resurrection, it did happen. Jesus really is alive. The tomb really is empty. That this really is the case. Forgiveness really has been provided. Now, now what, is, what, what does the resurrection reveal about the forgiveness of sin? What, what, is, what is it showing us about the forgiveness of sin? The resurrection shows us that the father was satisfied with the son's sacrifice for your sin and my sin. That the resurrection shows us that the father approved. He was satisfied with the son's sacrifice. That the resurrection is, if you will, a stamp of approval upon Jesus' sacrifice. What the cross secured for us, the resurrection ushers for us. So what did the cross secure? On the cross, the penalty of our sin bloodied and bruised Jesus. And because of the cross, the perfection of Jesus now blesses us. That was secured for us in the work of Jesus on the cross. On the cross, everything that we deserved, wrath, judgment, death, everything that we deserved, Jesus received. And now because of the cross, everything that Jesus deserves, we receive from God the Father. That's what was secured for us on the cross. And now the resurrection assures us of that. It is God the Father saying yes to that. It's as if God is giving us a receipt for the resurrection, a proof of purchase. It's as if God the Father is saying, take the receipt of the resurrection, put it in your back pocket and know everything needed to accomplish the forgiveness of your sin has happened. It has happened. It is sure. The resurrection is, is the final stamp of approval upon the great gospel promise that if we are in Jesus, then we are no longer in our sin. It's the final stamp of approval. Your sins have been forgiven. Easter announces grace to the guilty. God's provision for those who deserve his punishment. 
That's what Easter is announcing. Now, let me ask you two questions about that. Are you certain that your sins are forgiven? Are you certain about that? You know, that's one of those questions that it, it really has a way of getting down to the bottom of our life. Because if we get that question wrong, it really doesn't matter what else we get right in life. Are you certain that your sins are forgiven? The, the Bible is so clear that there is only one way toward the forgiveness of sins. There's only one way to get there, to get to a right relationship with God, and that's through the person of Jesus, the door of Jesus. The, the Bible is over and over sounding that theme of there is one way, and the one way is Jesus. It's through faith in Jesus. And, and faith is not just a mental agreement about some facts. It's not just saying, you know what? I agree that Jesus came and lived in my place. He died on the cross for my sin. He rose from dead on the third day. But faith is, is not less than that, but it is more than that. Faith is taking those facts, those facts now invading your soul, landing on your soul and in your soul in such a way where it begins to produce this joyful response in you. Where it, where it actually does something to you. It actually produces in you a willingness to turn from your sin. Everything that you know disqualifies you before God. And to turn from all of your good deeds, all the things that you think somehow qualify you before God. F faith is the moment where, where we're stirred up in response to turn from all of that and then to come to God with the empty hands of faith. Knowing that the only thing we bring for our salvation is the sin that makes us need it. And we come to God with the empty hands of faith saying to God the Father, I am trusting in the perfect sacrifice of the Son to make me right with you. And you know what God does in that moment when we do that? When we come humbly like that with empty hands? God the Father says, would you be willing to make a trade? I propose this trade to you. How about, how about I take your sin from you? Would you be so humble as to open up your hands and give me your sin. And then after I take your sin, how about, how about I do this? Would you be so humble as to allow me to give to you the perfect record of Jesus's righteousness? Could we make that trade? Could you be so humble as to do that? And then when we make that trade for all eternity, you'll be a part of my family. And for the rest of eternity, every time I look at you, I won't see you through the remaining sin in your life. I'll see you through the perfection of Jesus. Could we make that trade? I, I just wonder if you've made that trade with God. Are you certain that your sins are forgiven? Has there been a moment, that decisive moment, where you have crossed that line of faith? If you get this one wrong, it doesn't matter what else you get right. Are your sins forgiven? Question two, for those who, that, that is true for, your sins are forgiven. Are you grateful that your sins are forgiven? I mean, like this morning, is that putting a song in your soul? Is that giving, is that giving you reason to sing and dance and leap for joy this morning? I mean, one of the questions that I continually ask myself, because I think it's a good question of just, general spiritual health, is am I amazed at the grace of God? Like when I look at me and I know what's in me, you know, I mean, it, it can be so dark so quick in me. And when I look at me, the fact that God would, that God would love me, 
that God would rescue me, that God would put me in his family. That is amazing, isn't it? That God would do that for you. That is an amazing thing. Does, does grace amaze you or have you lost the wonder of that? The awe of grace. Can, can your heart easily sing this morning, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Are, are, your, are you certain your sins are forgiven? Are you grateful that your sins are forgiven? And here's the second thing. Not only does Easter assure us of the forgiveness of sin, Easter also announces to us freedom from the fear of death and future wrath. It announces to us the freedom from the fear of death and future wrath. You know, one of the reasons that I think Easter is so popular and so big and such great news is because it addresses on one side our most basic need, forgiveness, and our most common fear, death. It addresses both of those two things. I love how Paul Tripp summarizes the story of the Bible. He says it this way. The story of the Bible is the story of God doing the one thing we don't have the ability to do, and that's kill death. That's the story of the Bible. Easter announces to us, death has been defamed, and the death of Jesus was the death of death. That's what Easter announces that we no longer have to be held captive by the fear of death or future wrath. In this way, the resurrection of Jesus really does change everything for a follower of Jesus. It changes not only the, the, their life, their, their life is now seen through a different lens, transformed by the resurrection of Jesus, but it also redefines death for a follower of Jesus. It allows us to see death in a whole new way, a whole different way. How we approach death in our sin is much different than how we approach death forgiven of our sin, right? It's, it's much different. For those in Jesus, the, the, the great horror of death, that we're gonna then face the judgment of God, that the great horror of death has been exchanged for great hope. We're actually gonna meet our dad. That's who we're gonna meet. That the resurrection of Jesus totally changes, transforms Death. For the Christian, death is now just the dark door into the banquet hall where the wedding reception is in full swing, right? Where our groom, King Jesus, waits to welcome us in. That death is just the dark hallway allowing us to run into that banquet reception. That's where death is taking us now. Death no longer holds a threat. When we come to that dark doorway, are we scared? Of course we're scared. But are we terrified as a follower of Jesus? No, we're not. Now, why is that? Why are we not terrified of death and judgment any longer? Here's the reason. Because as a follower of Jesus, when we put our, our ear next to that cold door called death, and, and we hear through the door what's on the other side, and by the way, the best way to do that is to keep your ear down to the Bible. Read the Bible. Listen to the scriptures. When our, when our ear is next to that dark doorway called death, on the other side of that door, we can hear the shouts of joy. We can hear the laughter and we can hear the music of God's grace. That's why we're no longer terrified of death. The, the resurrection transforms death. This is why throughout the New Testament, Paul, listen to this, he mocks death. He mocks it. So in Philippians 1, we were here a few weeks ago, uh, there's a jailer and they're like, okay, Paul, we're gonna kill you. And Paul's like, great. Would you do that today and not tomorrow? Because to die is gain. 
I mean, this was Paul's perspective on death because of the resurrection. You see it again in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to those last few verses of 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 54. Death, Paul says, is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Easter announces we no longer have to fear death because in the death of Jesus was the death of death. In the death of Jesus was the death of death. The the resurrection, not just affirming it, not just knowing about it, but applying it. The felt experience of the resurrection changed everything for Paul. And it has changed everything for so many of the saints in church history. Let me give you an illustration of that. Martin Luther, uh, the reformer, was holding his 13-year-old daughter in his arms as she was dying. He looks up to God first and says, Oh God, I love her dearly, but, but your will be done, oh God. He, he looks down at his precious daughter and says, My, my, my precious girl, w- would you like to stay with your father here or would you just as gladly go to your father in heaven? 13 years old. She looks back up at her dad and says, Dad, as God wills, as God wills. And she dies in his arms. And Luther then turns to his wife, Katie, and says, Katie, let us think of the home our daughter has gone to. There she is happy and at peace. He lays her precious body down in the grave. And as he's doing it, he says, my darling, you will rise and shine like the sun and the stars. That's the power of the resurrection. That's how it changes death. Or maybe my favorite story is of John Patton. John Patton was on his way. He was, by the way, a 19th century missionary. And he was on his way to the cannibalistic island in the South Seas. And at one point, he had friends of his look at him before he left and say, John, what, 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 are, you, what are you doing? You're going to be eaten by cannibals. Have you lost your mind? You cannot go. Don't do it. He responds back. Without hesitation, Patton replied, I confess to you that if I can live and die serving my Lord Jesus Christ, it makes no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. For in the great day of the resurrection, my body will rise as yours in the likeness of our risen Savior. That's the difference the resurrection makes. That's how it transforms death. And Stonegate Church, church, that the next time death comes knocking at your door, allow the resurrection, not just just knowing it up here, but, but knowing it deep down here, allow the resurrection to transform that moment, to make a difference in that moment. The the resurrection in that moment will be announcing to you, your sin has been forgiven. Judgment no longer looms in your life. The party started. Grace, the the music of grace is already playing. That the resurrection, allow it. Allow the resurrection in that moment. 
when you can no longer ignore death, allow the resurrection to roar in 1 Corinthians 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful and to wipe away what wouldn't be helpful this morning. Are you certain that your sins are forgiven? I just want to beg you not to walk out of this room without considering that question. Are you certain that your sins are forgiven? It's the the deepest, most profound need that we have, the forgiveness of sin. And Easter is announcing, it is pointing to how our sin is forgiven through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Have you forsaken your sin? Have you come to God with the empty hands of faith? God is so ready and so willing to make the trade with you. I'll take your sin, God says. I'll give you the perfect record of righteousness, his perfect life. I'll give you that in exchange. And if you need to take that decisive step, and I just can't but imagine There are those in this room who this morning, that decisive step needs to happen. If that's you, just there where you are now, you can can pray to God asking, asking God, God, I'm throwing my life upon the life of Jesus. Save me, rescue me. God will be so faithful to do that for you. Are you grateful that your sins are forgiven this morning? Has it produced a song in your soul? Is it producing something in you that wants to sing and dance and leap for joy? Oh God, would you do that to us? Father, would you do that to us? God, would you refresh us this morning? Would you remind us of just how amazing grace is? God, would you allow us in this moment to sing to you with great joy and adoration and deep deep gratitude. Oh God, would you do that? And it's in your wonderful name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.